Good morning. <laughs> um, for those I haven't met, my name is Sarah. I use she, her pronouns. My Dharma name is Dojin, and I'm one of the priests and teachers here at Brooklyn Zen Center. Um, if, if it's your first time coming to Brooklyn Zen Center, can you just raise your hand? Welcome. We were... I was laughing this morning being like, careful what you wish for. <laughs> I wish for many, many people to practice. You know? And then it's like, but um, where? <laughs> On what cushions? <laughs> and it's really, um, it's, been, it's been wonderful for everyone in the community actually that over the last few months, but particularly since uh, the new year, we've been filling up this room in a, in a wonderfully vibrant way with all of you. And um, Thank you. <laughs> I, do, I do feel that the Buddha Dharma is the right medicine for the many sicknesses and, and ailments of our collective life on this world, and particularly this country. So it is, it is with a lot of joy. Like, I hope you're all comfortable and please like, let's find the cushions you need. <laughs> um, but there, there's so much joy um, in people seeking the Dharma. I'm a, sorry, I'm a little bit um, not, I, I, I know where I thought I, I, I know where I wrote down to start. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course I'm a different person than I was when I typed that and printed it. Because what I'd like, what, so what, what I hope to talk about today is bodhisattva humility and bodhisattva evolution. And we'll see if we get there. But, um, but what's very present for me actually is to um, acknowledge that I'm, I, in the midst, and this is partly why I think I'm a little bit, um, finding my way here is that there's all this joy and simultaneously um, I feel a lot of pain and I just want to I want to acknowledge that partly just to be authentic and, and true with you but also because um, to me this is our practice that our practice builds our capacity to abide in complexity and have multiple things happening simultaneously and not freak out and also not have to choose. Like my heart actually right now feels, I feel this abundant joy and, I, and more, more in my belly, I would say, actually, I feel this, I feel this a kind of sickness, like a queasiness and pain. Um, months a month, we do the service as we did it this week and then the other services have a different sort of formula to them. And, when, and once a, the beginning of each month, we do a well-being ceremony. So we're offering um, our presence and our chanting and our collective effort um, for the well-being, both of specific people and then uh, wider for the well-being of, of all beings. Um, and I, I was glad that um, the children of Gaza were named, but I also felt in my heart wanting to name everybody <laughs> in Gaza. And, and also everyone in Israel and everyone in the region, old people, middle-aged people, 
we never like change. We never pray for middle-aged people. <laughs> you know, teenage, the youth, and the old people. But I want to pray for all of us and the immense pain. I woke up, I can't remember if it was today or yesterday, I woke up with this feeling in my physical body of... Um, I've been thinking I'm going to say a word that is activating, and I and I offer it with care. Um, I was thinking about the the idea of genocide. This that this thing could, does exist in our world. It's a it, and I think it mostly comes from mind, but not exclusively. I think a, a thing that would lead people into attempts at genocide um, are well, there's a lot of mind involved in that a lot of ideas that are really gripping. And then also, um, there's a lot of body stuff. You know, I, I can only imagine that to be a person that is aiming in that kind of direction of annihilating other people is to have inherited un, unhealed and unprocessed trauma. And many, many humans have. Most of us do have that. And, but to have like a load of it <laughs> somehow. So the feeling I woke up with was um, I, I grew up in a part of the world. I grew up outside of Boston in Massachusetts. And my, there was a lot of, um, I grew up Catholic. There was a lot of uh, folks who were Jewish in my community. And there were several folks who were um, Holocaust survivors on my street. Um, there were several couples and they had been teenagers. in Auschwitz and they um, met as teenagers and then married. And I knew them as middle-aged people <laughs> and then elders. Um, and so the, a sensibility and so, and many of my friends and, um, and parents in my community were either children or grandchildren of folks in the Holocaust. It was very, it was very alive in my uh, perception of the world that this had happened and happened recently. And so the feeling I woke up with was, was the, the kind of the monster of that, the mind that could create that such a thing had like gotten transmitted. It stayed in, in the bodies and minds of people and like was a little, was, was maybe dormant for a little while. And now it's like, coming. It's, it's germinated and it's coming forward again. It all, I mean, and I know, and I also know this kind of impulse is happening all over the world. One of the pains I feel actually is, is this, that when we focus on one place, we can imagine that we're not focusing on tragedies elsewhere. And um, yeah, that's part of the pain. And also, but I think our practice could support us to know when we focus on a tragedy in one place, um, we, are, we are learning to open our heart to all of it. And so it's not, and, so, and that is how we learn. We, that's it, this is how we grow the capacity. We focus in and, um, and know it personally and, and intimately. So that then when we hear of another tragedy happening somewhere else, we um, don't abstract it. We stay with our total humanness in relation to it. Yeah. 
So in, in, in my heart of practice, I feel that I want to just name all that with all of us today. Um, and well-being ceremonies are not enough, and they're not nothing. You know, for us to concentrate, they, they are, they do matter, is what I want to say. To do a concentrated practice of well-being, to bring our presence to that, and to actually feel with our deep intention, feel it moving and causing benefit. So germinating something else. Bringing into the world systems and possibilities for healing things that previously haven't been able to be healed. I do experience this practice as supporting that. So that, that brings me to um, actually what I, what I wrote down, <laughs> some of it anyway, um, which is that I wanted to talk about, I wanted to spend some time looking together at um, the relationship between how we practice in stillness in Zen and movement or engagement. So why we train in stillness so that we can respond in the world with skillfulness, with the possibility of healing things that previously haven't been healed. Because I think sometimes, um, I I've experienced in different places, not so much at Brooklyn Zen Center, but other places where people were like, oh, no, no, meditation practice is over here. And I want it that way. <laughs> I want to be a refuge that doesn't include the pain of the world or, or is, a, is a place where I get to go away from that. And I understand that feeling. I have had that feeling. And it's a, it's a feeling to honor, actually, that we sometimes cannot stand it. You know? And we want places of refuge that feel apart. But our, our practice in, in Zen is that there is nothing apart. And it's OK that it takes a while to be OK with that. <laughs> but it is our practice, or and, and it is our practice. It really is our practice. There is nowhere that isn't everywhere. So when we chant right here, we are caring for the whole world. Um, Suzuki Roshi, who was the, um, the teacher who founded the San Francisco Zen Center, and a teacher of a number of my teachers, and um, a teacher in whose lineage the Brooklyn Zen Center is, um, has this quote that I, that I really love that was really important to me since early in my practice. And then I, as I visited over the years, I feel, I feel it you know, widening about the stillness of zazen, so about the stillness of meditation practice. He says, don't move, just die over and over. Don't anticipate. Nothing can save you now because you have only this moment. Not even enlightenment will help you now because there are no other moments. So with no future, be true to yourself and express yourself fully. Don't move. So I just want to offer that as like, that's kind of a complicated image. Like, don't move and express yourself fully. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Express yourself fully as don't move. Be right here. And I hear, again, like in, in more than I've ever heard before, actually this morning, I hear be, be whole, be your whole self in meditation. And, and while you're there, and so in, in, in that, don't move. Be with everything that's arising here. Um, we, we are just finished the second of a four-part beginner's mind series, which is really so joyful to do because um, Charlie and I are leading, teaching that together. And it's really, for me, it's like, well, what are the, found, what, what do we think the foundations of this practice are? And, and it's neat for me to see how that changes for myself over the years, you know, how I would express that. Um, but one of the things I would say is that we, we train in, uh, like in the temple. So this is our temple. Who said, so Erica, somebody was saying this is a, it's a pop-up temple. Because <laughs> we have to recreate it because we share this space, you know. We had to do a lot of recreating this morning. <laughs> there was a lot happening. It was, it was exciting. Um, so we have places where, and, and meditation practice, even if we, whether we do it at a temple or whether we do it with others or we do it by ourselves, is always a place of, it's always a temple. It's always a ceremony when we do it in, in this tradition. We're always with everyone when we do it, even if we're by ourselves on a mountaintop. And, and, um, and we use that concentrated place to train, not to remove ourselves, from the world, but to like ready ourselves to remember how to be whole and, and be still. So this stillness is not uh, apathy. The stillness is not acceptance or a stillness of um, complacency. It's a stillness of... Um, of the spaciousness to return to ourselves all the way. That's what we train in, in meditation. In any given moment, like that right now, as I'm talking about it, I'm like, that sounds so, I don't know. I don't know how that sounds to you. It might sound awful. <laughs> to me, it sounds like, oh, that's so wonderful. Like, who wouldn't want to? <laughs> but in any given moment in meditation, um, here's what this could look like. I'm sitting in meditation, and I have an itch. What am I going to do? So I've made a commitment for this half an hour that I'm going to be still. Itches, I just want to say, can become amazing things to investigate. If you want to check it out, if you haven't. <laughs> I was remembering actually thinking of itches that when we lived at a monastery in California called Tassajara, there, there are these flies called mucus flies that they don't bite. They're not going to hurt you, but they would like to walk into your ear. <laughs> and it is a natural human defense to be like, please don't enter my orifices. You know, like. <laughs> and so it there would be seasons where you had the opportunity to practice with, you could hear them walking. <laughs> and I just keep telling myself, they're not going to bite. They're not going to bite. Um, and that can seem like, like, what does that have to do with like extreme genocidal violence? <laughs> and I would say it is, it does matter 
how how we meet that has it matters because one because we're training in the capacity to tolerate discomfort we're training in being intentional every once in a while i would be like <laughs> so i didn't i didn't always win that battle <laughs> or like And still, though, and even in the times when I, when I didn't or I did move, I was still training in the capacity to be intentional with what I was doing. This really matters. When we are training in the capacity to be intentional with what we're doing, we, um, one of the things I think we're broadening in ourselves is the capacity to, to do stuff in the world from, from our heart, that, that it's like located in our actual values in contrast to moving in the world in, in ways we've been habituated into and conditioned into, which include a bunch of values that probably for most of us, even though they're there and they move in us, they're not ours. They're not our truest heart. I don't actually think some people are more valuable than others. I don't. Even as a small child, I was like, I don't know what you all are talking about. Everybody matters all, you know, sorry, I don't want to. All people are valuable. And, and, but I was probably articulating that because I was being trained in a system where some people were more valuable than others. That's very deep in me as a white American. So again, like in practice, I practice in meditation with this commitment every day so that I can know that's one of the things that moves in me. And when I'm not moving from a place of intention, that moves through me actually and shapes my actions and my words and my thinking and it shapes how I impact other people. Even when I am keeping a close eye on it, this still happens all the time and uh, causes harm. Let me just see what else I have. <laughs> so I think there were some other things I wanted to say. Um, okay. So we can, so um, I, I really do want to encourage us that we understand the stillness of our practice to be a, a training ground of intentionality. That's one piece of wholeness. Like, what does it actually feel like for me to be whole? And, and I would say also it's a training ground of, of connection. And that can not be so obvious. Again, especially if I'm, like, I'm in my apartment and I'm by myself sitting. And I'm like, well, nobody else is doing this. I'm just doing this, you know. But every time we're doing this, um, we, are, we are joining with the momentum. Even the posture, it doesn't, and we could do this practice lying down. However we're doing it, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, sitting cross-legged, sitting in a chair, um, lying on our back with our legs up. However, we're joining, and whether we know it or not, we're joining this lineage of human beings who have made this effort to be awake to the wholeness of themselves and, and how they're connected with all things. And another thing we're training in is um, a mind of pliancy, or we often talk about not knowing. 
So I hear this when Suzuki Roshi says, just die over and over again. Just die. don't move, just die over and over. He's saying, um, let go. And let, the, let, let, let go. And now the next moment, be born. You could, you could equally say, be born over and over again. <laughs> but, and when we do that, we're, we're training in a mind that um, is receptive to this moment, and then the next moment, and then the next moment. Actually, sorry, Maurice, I'm going <laughs> to, is it okay to share about the car alarm? <laughs> um, we, we were, we, when we do online morning zaza, and some, sometimes we share like what's happening for us. And Maurice did this thing that I was like, that's so zen. Um, where, where there was a car alarm going and he was expressing that, um, he, he, it just sounded like you're having the experience of like hearing it and then hearing it again and then hearing it again. And our a, a natural human, again, a habituated thing, an adaptive thing, that's probably very old, probably pre-human even, would be to start to tune it out because it's agitating. And, but our practice supports us to be like fresh every time. Wow, that's loud. <laughs> Still really loud. <laughs> really irritating. <laughs> and, and to me, this is like, this is, this, is a, this is a fruit of practice that the mind continues to be receptive. So we don't get, we don't tune out. We do need to practice with each other. Again, even if we do this in our home by ourselves, please feel how we do that with one another because this requires a heart that is also doing the same thing. The heart mind, actually, you know, often we talk about there's one character for that in Japanese and Chinese. The heart also has to be willing to receive over and over again. And we, and we naturally do the same thing with things that are painful and agitating. We start to diminish, you know, like the way our smell will adapt and we won't notice things over time. But our practices need it fresh over and over again. Don't, don't, dimin- don't let the pain of this new tragedy diminish. Stay present for like, it's that bad. It's that painful. And again, don't do this by yourself. <laughs> What's the thing like in the 70s? Like, don't try this at home. Don't try this in isolation. Don't try this. Don't try this practice in the delusion of being separate from others. It's not what it was made for. And, and, we, and we are quite well made for doing this with one another so that we, um, we can wake up over and over again. So we talk about this. So or the, people may have heard this idea of like, of not knowing, or, or in, in the class we were talking about, beginner's mind contrasted with expert's mind or knowing mind. The beginner's mind is what we're cultivating. It's a supple mind. It's a pliant mind. It's a receiving mind. Um, this, this expression of not knowing, there's different places it comes from, but a big one is a koan or a story from China with a teacher named Ditsang, or that that's the... Same word as jizo, which is um, kashitagarbha in Sanskrit. So this is, Ditsang was a monk named after a temple that was named after a bodhisattva. <laughs> and jizo bodhisattva or Ditsang bodhisattva, um, uh, that, their name means earth womb bodhisattva. And they are the archetypal, they're the archetype of fearlessness and um, protection. 
and a, and a capacity to move across realms. And a monk was visiting Ditsang in his little temple and then was going off to a pilgrimage because this was something <clears throat> a lot of the, I, it, I get the feeling like a lot of the young monks do this, right? They would run around looking for the, the real deal. <laughs> and somebody like Ditsang, who I imagine in this story is older, and is just like, mm -hmm. knowing that there's nowhere else to go, actually, he's gotten to an understanding of that, was like, well, where, so where are you going? And the young monk said, I'm going on pilgrimage. Uh, and he said, why? And the, the young monk said, I don't know. And he said, not knowing is most intimate, or that's a translation of what he said. And, and he approved <laughs> of the young monk not trying to grasp at what he was doing. Or she, maybe she was a she. And I think of this quality um, as one of the things we're training in. And, and, it, it, and it was moving in my mind the last few weeks as, as bodhisattva humility. So the kind of um, pliancy of mind that allows us to be receptive over and over again. We're training in this. Um, Vipassana sent me an article. I told her I was going to include this, so I'm not. Poor Maurice, I just, he was on the spot. <laughs> I did give Vipassana forewarning I was going to say her name. Um, it's a, an article called, that was in Time Magazine called The Power of Changing Your Mind. And um, I'll say the name as I'm reading it, but correct me if somebody knows how to pronounce the author's name better. Um, Hala Alyan. She's a, a Palestinian-American psychologist. I really recommend the article. I can't do it justice. <laughs> and it feels very, I think for Vipassana and, then, and also I, for myself as well, very resonant with practice. Um, and I just want to say a few of the things that she offers in the article that I felt like are about, about what we're training in, in, in our practice life. Um, she's, she's talking about like how we change minds. I think my, my feeling is that she was addressing, um, and I probably won't get into it, so, but I'll name that as part of the article, that she's addressing, I think, some a, a feeling in some movements of like wanting to shame people who hadn't woken up yet to the extent of atrocities. And, and her essential message was like, not so helpful. <laughs> That actually, whenever people show up, we need to start, to, we need to be cultivating ways of being together that whenever people show up, we're like, glad you're here. Let's do the work we need to do. And, and she's beautifully recognizes because, we, because there are different obstacles for people to waking up to things and honoring those instead of being, um, yeah, wanting to shame people around them. And she's like, you know, and... <laughs> She's a Palestinian-American. She knows what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a lot of oppression and um, pain. And, so, and she was naming for herself the times when that capacity gets more shut down and there's more contraction. And actually, she does want to shame and blame people. You know? 
Um, but but she names in there, um, it comes as, so given what she was saying, <laughs> it comes as no surprise that changing one's mind is an art form and in and of, in and of itself, a practice of endurance and flexibility. And that really made me feel resonant with Zen practice. It resembles marathoning <laughs> or playing an instrument, something that gets better the more you do it with an element of muscle memory. It necessitates exposure to new information and ideas, goodness of fit in terms of timing and delivery of that information, and one's own predisposition to cognitive adaptability is a process of privilege. And that, and that really struck me. If we're lucky enough to be able to wake up to things fully, that we, that we can feel the privilege in it, that we're not burdened by contraction that makes it impossible if nothing else. One must have access to information that can change one's mind and one must have the temperament and the time, and I would say, and the energy to absorb it. And I really, and I feel like, so when we do meditation practice, even if we do five minutes, we were talking about this in the beginner's mind class, even if we just make have five minutes a day that we're gonna sit and do meditation, we're, um, we're training our whole body-mind system that there's a value for making the space for absorbing it, <laughs> it being all everything. Just room to exist, that that's valuable. Um, and then she says, I wish I could read you the whole thing. <laughs> um, but she also talks about the necessity to not sanitize our history, to not act as if um, the, the present values that we have have always been so, when they obviously so recently have not been so, and, most, and sometimes they, still, they aren't still. <laughs> when, we, when we do this, we rob ourselves, when we try to sanitize history, positioning it as if it was, as though now, the now lauded were always lauded, and she was, naming particularly uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, as though dom the dominant narrative was always right, because it wasn't, and it isn't. If we keep positioning injustices as bygone eras, we risk not recognizing when they are unfolding in real time, in front of our very present open eyes. And this speaks to a mindset that mushrooms everywhere, from celebrities to institutions to presidents, one that resists any true reckoning because it resists true humility. In the realm of cognitive flexibility, without humility, it's impossible to admit wrongness, to attach to an attachment to a flawed idea. You become your thought and your narrative. You become your mind. You equate anything challenging that to a challenge of yourself. I feel like this is precisely what we gently, tenderly, lovingly address when we train in meditation in this tradition. We take, we get ourselves out in front of our awareness and we see what it is. And then she goes on to say, what one is looking for in an open, is an opening, which is almost, which almost always manifests as curiosity. I love that. 
And, and that is a quality, too, that we can bring into our meditation. An inquiry, tender curiosity. What is it right here? When, you know, when Suzuki Roshi says, just express yourself fully. What is that? Even the stuff we don't want in there. And then I love that she says, because I also have training in psychology, she's like, as a psychologist, I think one of the most tactical approaches <laughs> to getting people to change their mind is to meet people where they're at. And she talks about how that works, and particularly in the realm of addiction and eating disorder. And I'll just read a little bit more of it, that from what she offers is um, also the words... The difficult thing is to not meet human dehumanization with dehumanization. And that, I think, is something that we have been talking about here and to me is always implicit, but there's a way, like, I just want to keep making it explicitly clear that we, if, if there's violence in the world that we can't tolerate, we have to find our way into meeting it that isn't going to perpetuate violence. And so if we look over at people that are perpetuating harm and, and either mentally or actually we want to cause them harm, we have to know what we're doing. There's that thing again, like we have to be intentional and, and recognize what we're doing is more war, is more dehumanization and more violence. And I really appreciate that you said it is difficult it is not a generally conditioned human impulse to not to, to meet dehumanization, to not meet dehumanization with more dehumanization, even if it's subtler dehumanization. And again, I would say, super important. We have to we have to start doing it with like a kind of vigor that maybe we haven't been able to muster before. And in order to do that, we have to do that with one another. Like we really have to feel how we are connected to each other in this. She says, seeking curiosity isn't easy. It can come at the largest social costs, inner destabilization, relational losses. People get their values from the world around us. We all do. The slow winding work of figuring out what our values are Detangling them from those around us can be the work of a lifetime. And when people do it, let us try to welcome them, however long we think it took them to get there, because often it took exactly as long as there were hurdles to overcome. So thank you, Halia Alyan. <laughs> and again, her article is called The Power of Changing Your Mind in Time Magazine. There has been um, pain in our community. Uh, I mean, there's just, there is pain, always. <laughs> this is part of uh, one of the things that characterizes the realm we live in is suffering, or the, the Buddha's first noble truth is there is suffering. Um, there's been particular pain um, since, since, the, since October 7th. I cannot find the right language for that. <laughs> You know, 
It's because it was like in a stream of ongoing violence since this particular eruption of violence. I don't, I don't know what the word. And then, you know, it's, oh my God, it's just so painful. There's, there's been uh, pain in our community of different, many kinds, as there probably has been in all many communities that are aware of this. One of the pains in particular that I want to name that I've been so grateful that people have entrusted me with naming is a kind of frustration about that the Brooklyn Zen Center as an institution is not moving fast enough to do something, say something, make, make, make a statement and do something. <laughs> um, so first I wanna just, just for a second, just truly in my heart, there's this, this treasuring that that pain can be surfaced and entrusted, that the people feeling it didn't put a lid on it. But instead we're like, I'm, I'm feeling frustrated. Actually, I'm in pain. How can we, how can we be a sangha that, that names equity and social and racial justice as, as like the root of what we do and not be moving really fast and with everything we got? And, and I agree. And I'm sorry, actually. Um, to be a person in spiritual leadership, it's, it goes slower sometimes than people would like. <laughs> and, even, and, and so there's a piece that, like, there's this thing I want to name that we hold leadership in council in this sangha. And part of what that means is it goes slower. <laughs> you have to consult with everybody. And I really value this. I want to say I've been in different settings. And Zen settings in particular have a long history of hierarchy. So there is a way that like in our tradition, it could just be one person being like, here's what we're doing. And that's not what we do here. And that, and that itself has come out of a lot of learning from pain and harm. So I value this a lot and it does go slower. And maybe even more importantly, what I wanna name for myself as a teacher is um, I have been trained in my cultural conditioning to deflect away from things that look like genocide. I grew up in the United States as a white person. It, it, it's deep in my cultural training that I deflect from movements that try to wipe out people because that's what my, and I'll say for myself, because it's not everyone's culture who's here. You know, I know that. But the cultures I come from depend on people suppressing that and not acknowledging the pain that's happened on the soil I live on and do live on. So when I think about why there's some hesitation around using the word genocide, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. It makes sense that we're careful with it. So there's a slowness that comes from care, but it also makes sense that there's like a bunch of muddling and confusion because we, because we carry conditioning that says, don't look at that, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. And even though I have devoted my adult life to trying to look <laughs> and see things clearly, I still carry this conditioning. So a kind of complacency that can come from that conditioning does live in me and, and can cause harm and can be one of the ingredients. It can be right there alongside and we have to go slow to take care. 
you know, and, and, and again, like I want to, I want as a collective to be like, well, I want for myself and for us together to be like holding, holding that those both can be there. Yeah. And it's okay that um, one of the ingredients will be a kind of repression of reality that many of us have trained in, I certainly am trained in. Yeah. And then I, when I name it, now I can work with it. Yeah. I can work with it and I can um, uh, care for it, actually. Uh, but, I, but I do want to say this last piece about uh, bodhisattva evolution. And this one's tricky because in Zen we also, or it's often, it's often talked about having no gaining idea. So I just spent like, like thank you for all your attention, you know. And I and I, into that attention, I put this idea like, well, we are training in something, <laughs> but we're not trying to get anywhere. <laughs> but I do. But lately, I've been like, looking at this idea of not having a gaining mind, not trying to get something. If we come to practice with an idea of like, I'm going to make myself better, I'm going to, you know, it, with, and we can feel, and I'm sure each of us can feel the difference, a kind of grasping at, um, in some ways, it's very similar to that thing of like, I see dehumanization in the world, and I meet it with a subtler dehumanization, and all I'm doing is perpetuating it. We could be like, I don't, I don't, I feel uncomfortable in my being, something's weird about myself, I feel too disconnected. Now I'm going to come to practice and I'm going to make myself better, just going to make the disconnection deeper. Does that make sense? Like there's a way and it's subtle, this difference. But I do believe, um, again, in my heart of practice, that practice is asking us to evolve and into liberation. It is asking us to change, but it's not asking us to change um, in a small way or in a graspy, you know, tight way, and even in a personal way. It's asking us to, to soften the self thing and feel how we're with one another and then learn how to make effort from that place that actually transforms the world. It does change it, does heal stuff. That we evolve and that we actually make a commitment to evolve and that we also make a commitment to like that might not look like one like like a line that goes like this that it might go <laughs> you know um, but that we trust that if we do this with one another and that we keep surfacing what's painful and we keep surfacing what's joyful with equal discipline that that the overall trajectory will be in a transformational direction that that helps us heal So the difference is, are we that that a, a different orientation is like I'm changing for myself, or am I changing for the well-being of all beings, with the well-being of all beings? Okay. Thank you very much. May our Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, 
please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.